but the art form of looking through the veils and meeting another being in a space which allows whatever could be to be rather than coming in with a program that defines reality so rigidly i saw that as the game and i was the deepest part of that teaching was in the statement out of emptiness arises compassion that when i am empty of my separateness for a moment i experience the totality i am the totality and out of that gestalt that intuitive gestalt comes a response and the response doesn't ignore that suffering or that joy or that reality or that possibility it's all part of which you can't analytically understand anyway Welcome everyone to another Ramdas here and now episode. We come to this podcast to find wisdom and heart and to remember our true essence as we navigate the joys and sorrows of this incredible human, what Ramdas called predicament. I'm Jackie Dobrinska, your host, and you, you all are the Ramdas community. Thank you for tuning in. This is episode 226. Escaping the Prison of Separateness. In this lecture, he talks about how uh, we live on two planes, the one that we're used to and steeped in, our own sense of I-ness or separateness, and then also the one that we often have to remember. They often come through in mystical experiences, whether psychedelic or otherwise. Sometimes it's just an inner knowing um, it's kind of the sense of isness or oneness. It's hard to put words to. Um, you might even consider it an usness. Uh, years ago, and I haven't found it since. So if you know the study, please let us know. But there is the podcast, and it was theorizing that dolphins don't think in a sense of separate eye. That the pod is the referential point. The pod is the eye. So um, that is how they explained how dolphins would come to rescue humans often, that they weren't going to rescue a separate entity, they were going to rescue a part of themselves. And it's sort of like that other lecture of Ramdas where he talks about the right hand pulling the left hand out of the fire. And I've always loved this theory. And um, really have been curious, like, how would it change our lives to come from that place more often, to let go of our certainty of how it all is, that, like, incredible sense of separateness, and to live more in the mystery of the interconnectedness of life, um, to really live from the place that our lives have something to do with each other in a way that we can't even fathom, that is so interwoven, because we're so much a part of the same thing. Um, and he, in this podcast, talks about using life to break free from the things that block us from this other plane of reality. Um, but listen, discern, figure out your own take-home messages, and then bring them to our next community call. Bring your wisdom and your inspirations you just go to ramdas.org slash fellowship and you'll get more information and you can sign up and then you can be invited to the next call to discuss. And they're really sweet, sweet calls. Um, 
this podcast, it was recorded in May of 1994 at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, which is really an incredible and beautiful place. And I think all of us know one of the things that touches us about his teachings is how perennial they are. Um, They're sort of out of time in many ways. And then every once in a while, something drops in from the time in which he was speaking that sort of brings us back into time. And that happens in this lecture a little bit. Uh, specifically, there is a reference to AIDS, which today is largely controlled through antiretroviral therapy. Um, there's also a reference around rights that sort of doesn't acknowledge position and privilege in the world, uh, something that's much more in the zeitgeist today than it was in the 1990s. And that's sort of the form piece, and we can get lost there. Um, and so, we, you know, we come back and we also remember the formless. It's that paradox, right, of working in two planes simultaneously, being in the world but not of it. We feed people, whether it's food or care or connection or allyship. And then we also work on ourselves to become free of our identifications. So he does talk a lot about how to feed people without getting caught in the stuff that creates bondage. Um, And there's this great saying from a community garden that I was part of for many years. And it says, we're all hungry for something and we all have something to give. So I think when we remember this, we can weave our great gladness and our hunger together with others so that everybody gets fed. Um, Someone else might be hungry for food, but we might be hungry for purpose or connection. So uh, when I show up at a soup kitchen, no one's better than anyone else. We're just all getting needs met in various ways. And remembering this might help bring us out of that self-righteous, do-gooding separateness that um, can often get in our way. One last thing I want to share before we dive in for those who are hungry for it. Uh, We all know that it takes focus to practice many of these teachings. It takes Shakti to break free or just sustained energy uh, in our reserves to serve others both near and far. Uh, And there's lots of ways to gain this energy, to replenish this energy. It's rest and yoga nidra and going out into nature and unplugging and sound baths and so much more. But as an herbalist and an earth-based healing practitioner, I also often turn to plants. And recently I've been telling you about this little drink called Magic Mind and its host of potent ingredients that can really nourish your energy levels as well as mental clarity. Uh, One of the ingredients is matcha, a plant known as Camellia sinensis, which has been used in China and Japan for thousands of years. It has been promoted for improving mental alertness and is also a neuroprotector. Uh, It also has some powerful antioxidants, which can help reduce inflammation in the body and therefore impacts everything from mood to arthritis. Um, I'm so enamored with this drink and how it improves my mood and focus that I keep sharing it with you and everyone. And the company is again giving you all, this audience, 50% off your subscription if you order in the next 10 days. So you just go to magicmind.co slash ramdas. And then in the code, you'll put in Ramdas. So that again, that's magicmind.co slash Ramdas. And we hope you're well nourished by this episode and the teachings. Uh, so I hope you enjoy. And as always, whatever good may come from this episode and what you hear, may it benefit all of us in our daily lives and ripple out into the world for the benefit of all beings. 
We thank the many, many people who make this podcast possible from our sound guys to our sponsors, to you for tuning in and for all of those who donate. If you don't already and want to keep making this happen in the world, please consider donating at ramdas.org slash donate. So here is Ramdas, here and now. Namaste and blessings. Uh, is this a kiva? Is it a temple? Is it a synagogue? Is it a mosque? Is it a church? Is it a hotel? Is it home? There was a moment when I was on tour once for a, a, a very long time, it seemed, 25 years. And um, I came to another Ramada Inn in uh, some city somewhere. And I came into the room and it, was, uh, it had the uh, usual accoutrements of a Ramada Inn. And I sat down on the couch, plastic couch, and I took my holy pictures and I put them on the plastic table. And I sat there just to wanted to quiet myself before I went in and unwrapped the bar of soap. And um, I thought to myself, well, a couple of more weeks and I can go home. And I heard myself think that. I thought, wow, am I creating suffering? So I got up and I went outside and I closed the door and I walked down the hall and I came back and I opened the door and I yelled, I'm home. <laughs> I thought enough of waiting to go home. Why don't I start out as if I'm home? I mean, if you're going to honor the information age, if you're going to honor the mobility, if you're going to honor the breakdown of all of the barriers to honoring diversity without being trapped by it, I guess we should get on with it and be in it. I realize we've spent an awful lot of time with the crucifixion, not quite enough with the ascension. Yeah. And it may be time to celebrate. But what chutzpah to celebrate in the midst of such suffering? And that seems to me to be our problem, that we are so blown away by the suffering, we can't celebrate. And because we can't celebrate, because we're so blown away by the suffering, we keep creating the suffering. It's far out how it works. I mean, I realize that in most of the work I do to help other people, I'm like Typhoid Mary. I'm coming in doing good works, and everybody says, Ramdas is so good. And I am. I'm really good. <laughs> you know? It's a great role in the world. I'll tell you, it's like liquid grace all the time. You know? But there's a place in me that still rips it off, that still is somebody doing something. And therefore, whoever I'm doing it to becomes somebody to whom I've done something. In other words, it distances me from my beloved. See, I kind of, um, I look at the predicament we are facing. 
the way I look at it is um, we are shared awareness and for one reason or another that shall remain unexplored at this moment, you and I uh, incarnated on this, in the, on this trip. And we came into these forms, or awareness entered form again. And once you were in the form, the form interacted with other forms. And you became a form. Usually the way I say it is you went into somebody training. You came in awareness. And then slowly you were taught, I'm Richard. You weren't taught, I'm Richard. You were taught, you're somebody else. But I was, um, I was the, t the complimentary template on which my parents printed my identity. Because I was who they thought I was. Since their consciousness was defining my reality. Plus my genetics, my karma, a few other little variables. So I went into somebody training and I became a very, uh, a somebody. Once I was a somebody, I was no longer everything. And once I was no longer everything, I'll tell you, I felt a little separate. And I felt a little hungry. And I felt a little cold and a little frightened because I was very little and the forces in the universe were very big. Starting with my mother. <laughs> let alone cyclones, tornadoes, and other natural phenomena. And because I felt so little, the world of power became real to me. How do I keep enough power to survive as a separate entity? And I developed very strong needs and desires as a separate entity. I need this. I want this. And I grew up being somebody. And then in 1961, when I took the mushroom with, at the kind hand of Timothy Leary, I recognized that who I thought I was was a hype I'd been had. And that what I was was much more interesting than that. That I was, in fact, everybody in drag being somebody. <laughs> and the minute I tasted that, my whole agenda in life changed. It changed so dramatically I got thrown out of Harvard. My agenda changed because I saw so clearly that I, <clears throat> busy being a somebody, in my actions kept perpetuating the separation between people because I was attached to it in myself. My somebodyness was reinforcing everybody else's somebodyness. So, what I did because of uh, Eastern philosophy and, and methods and path, I became a renunciate for a while. A horny one, but a renunciate. <laughs> a renunciate that in effect said, the world of stuff is so seductive that I just got to get away from it for a while. I've got to stop reading the New York Times. I've got to just pull back for a moment in order to hear the 
the voices within which are being dimmed, dimmed by the trumpets of the culture in which I'm living. So I pull back. And the way you pull back is you begin to think that this plane of reality is somehow less. You get caught in that. And then after a while of doing that, because what I saw was that if I went to act from where I was, the likelihood is I was going to create suffering, even if I was attempting to do good. Because you give somebody some food. Now, I'm not saying, well, of course you, you, of course you want to give people food. But where you give the people food from depends whether you feed their stomach or feed their freedom. And I saw that I was feeding stomachs, but not freedom. And that it wasn't an either or, it was a both and, but I hadn't got my act together. Because I was still somebody doing something. Is this too weird or can you hear? Huh? Want me to slow down and do it there? So I got into the strategy, we can't do good until we are good, and then we be good, and then good happens. Got that one? We can't do good till we be good, and when we be good, then good happens. But you don't do it. But it happens anyway. It's the Tao. One does nothing, and nothing is left undone. What I'm basically talking about is learning to live simultaneously on two planes of awareness. So that your actions are not coming just in reaction to the forms around you, but is coming out of emptiness. It is coming also out of another plane behind that where there isn't form. But it's so hard because of the seductiveness of the suffering and the wanting to do something about it, so you get caught in doing and you don't cultivate the being because you're a good person and you, don't, you can't wait. So we, we bifurcated in the late 60s and there were the people that said, look, you can't wait to do good, go do good. The hell with being good. And the others that said, we better get on with our being or else we're not going to do much good. And we all did our part. And that was all the movements and all the stuff that went on then. And by the mid-70s, we realized that we were all trapped in our practices. The doers burning out. The beers feeling they were cut off from the life force of the universe because they were pushing away the world. I realized that if Buddha's right, that attraction or aversion of mind is the cause of suffering, and if I am averse to my own passions or my own pain or the world's pain or anything, it's got me. It's got me. You can't be phony holy. You can't push it away. You can't go to la-la land. So at that point, I flipped around and said, okay, my yoga of getting free now will be through being in the world. That's what I was told to do anyway. I might as well do it. Because when I said to my guru, how will I get enlightened? His answer was feed people. And I figured it got lost in the translation, so I tried again. Uh, I say, how do I know God? He said, serve people. And slowly, it turned out that was right. That was my way, because I'm named Hanuman, which is Ramdas, servant of God, which means 
the name of the Hanuman, the monkey, and it's all a, all it is for me is it is a strategy, a practice, a path that involves service as a vehicle to transcend dualism. So that if I'm working with somebody with AIDS, advanced AIDS, and I walk into the room, what do I see? If I'm freaked about AIDS, what I see is an AIDS patient. It's like I have, uh, having the background I have, I haven't worked out all my stuff about money yet. So if I'm in a room with five people and four of them, and one of them is rich, I see God in four people and a rich person. What horrible, how poignant I am. That's the best I can do now. I can't really climb in a horrible anymore. It's the way it is. It's... But the art form of looking through the veils and meeting another being in a space which allows whatever could be to be, rather than coming in with a program that defines reality so rigidly, I saw that as the game, and I was, the deepest part of that teaching was in the statement, out of emptiness arises compassion. That when I am empty of my separateness for a moment, I experience the totality, I am the totality. And out of that gestalt, that intuitive gestalt, comes a response. And the response doesn't ignore that suffering or that joy or that reality or that possibility. It's all part of which you can't analytically understand anyway. You can grok it, though. You can, you can, whoops. I wasn't to use the notes anyway. What a great teaching. I've got great notes. You can't believe. I've got quotes, <laughs> quotes from Durkheim and Einstein and Dalai Lama and Maslow and, and Thich Nhat Hanh. And... <laughs> oh, well. Blew it again for Omega. I'm supposed to come out and be erudite and very... Um, There's a great moment when all the, I just did a, a lecture on Aldous Huxley in Los Angeles for his 100th birthday. When Aldous was young in the 20s, when he wrote uh, Brave New World in 1931, the year I was born, um, he was a kind of a, an English um, cynical satirist. Kind of a, he was the darling of English society because he was so, um, he, he had a humor, a dry humor, and he was uh, very, very, uh, intellectually cynical in a delightful way. <clears throat> and then what happened in the 30s and 40s, he um, entered into a relationship out of his curiosity about the universe, he entered into a relationship with mysticism. <clears throat> then he wrote things like the perennial philosophy and so on. And he started to change. But the people that had loved him before weren't really ready to go that route. So they started to reject him. And the criticism at that time was he had become 
uh, a kind of a fuzzy-minded proselytizer that kept saying the same thing over and over. And I thought, of course he would say the same thing over and over. Because once you have touched it, what is it but to say the same thing in a thousand different metaphors and ways? So the story seems to me to be the old story. At one point, I was with uh, Tom Berry, a very beautiful, beautiful, beautiful man. And he, yeah, I'm sure many of you know him, any colleagues. And Tom was, was telling me about giving a lecture in Canada with the Cree and the other nations. And the night before he was to speak to the, this group of indigenous peoples, he went outside and he looked up at the moon and he said, what should I say? And the moon said, tell our story. And then he went and he asked a gopher, what should I say? And the gopher said, tell our story. And he asked the mountain and the mountain said, tell our story. He said, tell our story, tell the gopher's story, tell your story, tell our story. In a way, this is our story over and over again. We come into form, we get lost into the form, and then there is an awakening to see our predicament that we are lost in the form. And as long as you're lost in the form, you keep perpetuating the suffering that is the experience of entrapment in form. And if you would free another, you've got to be free. It takes one to know one. It takes one to touch one. But the result, but the thing is, you can't wait till you're enlightened to help people. So you're caught in the dilemma because your heart hurts. You can't say, I'm sorry, uh, you just starved now because I'm working on myself. I'll give you food later. So you do what you can to relieve the pain of our heart. But you do it as an exercise on yourself to become free of somebody doing anything. In order to become an environment for other people where every interaction you have with them is a space in which they can become as free as they choose to be and there's nothing in your mind that keeps trapping them into being somebody. Takes me how long when I walk into the room with somebody with AIDS before I see somebody with AIDS, not an AIDS patient? How long does it take me before I can look into the eyes with my heart open and be in love with that of me, which is a person which is with AIDS? Not she or he has AIDS but us is in AIDS or I is in AIDS. How soon before I can accept into myself the immensity of the suffering that is involved in that individual's predicament because they think they are separate. They think they're going somewhere if they die. Ramana Maharshi, the great Indian saint, when he was dying, they said, oh, Bhagwan, don't leave us, don't leave us. And they were crying and he said, don't be silly, where could I go? Where could I go? So, what I experience is that you and I are in a training program. 
we are undergoing a curriculum. It's called your life. And it's a set of experiences through which you can transcend the space between experiencer and experience. You can keep opening into it and opening into it and opening into it until you are, you have embraced the universe into yourself and then out of you comes your next act. It's the wisdom of the Tao. It's not what I think I should do. It's what is being done. What it seems to me happened that was interesting was that years back, like um, 17th century, years back, there was an awakening sense of individuality. And yet, it was so profoundly enmeshed because of survival necessity in and because of geography and so on, it was enmeshed in social systems. Like when I go to India, I'm always blown away by how basic the people's identification is with their role rather than with their personality. And I come back and I realize what a personality cult we are, how addicted we are to a certain set of metaphors or myths to describe who we think we are and what we think our life is about. And we think that's freedom and a step up. But the predicament is that personality is a cloak to be worn lightly. It is a lousy master and it's a great servant. Your intellect, your analytic mind, your conceptual model of who you are and how it all is, that should be part of your, um, one of your computer programs you can call up when you need it. But to live stuck in a program, how uninteresting, how finite, how finite for an infinite problem. A family goes into a restaurant and sits down to order and the waitress comes and the child, they go around, the child says, I'll have a hot dog. And the mother says, no, you won't. You'll have steak and potatoes. And the, the waitress says to the boy, do you want mustard or ketchup on that? <laughs> and she takes the order and walks away. And there's a silence at the table. And the little boy says, wow, she thinks I'm real. <laughs> I don't know what that has to do. I just, <laughs> I just like it. Because we get so busy being real. Afraid of death, achieving, accomplishing, needing, solving the world's problems, doing something about something. And because we are in such a reactive mode all the time, we tune out the wisdom that we as humans are, have accessible to us as part of our lineage because we're so busy trying to know the answers. I live much more with the mystery People say, what are you going to do in the future? I don't know. Who are you, Ramdas? I don't know. Am I an anachronism from the 60s, or am I about to happen? <laughs> or are both of those myths kind of trashy? Any myth seems awfully finite. 
Aren't you an infinite set of beings? I am. So what happened in history was that we were all part of this. And then, then the world changed. Technology, the Industrial Revolution came along, and the mobility came along related to that. Ford's in his fliver and all's well with the world, says Brave New World. That the whole perception of humans changed. People became economic entities. They were connected with consumption and production. And people started to feel constrained, and they started to break out, and individualism was promised in the Bill of Rights. And individualism started to grow and grow and grow like a mushroom. And people's personalities, they started to so deeply identify with their desires and needs that all their desires and needs turned into rights. Far out. And you look at somebody and they say, if I want my rights, the question is when they get them, are they happy? And the secret is if they're happy going for their rights and not having them, they will be happy when they have them. Start out being happy instead of getting there. In the 60s, it got so, I think I have to get through the wet part to get you like one quote. It's just, yeah. See the quotes you missed. The quotes you missed were like John Winthrop, the first governor of Massachusetts saying, we must delight in each other make others' conditions our own, rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together, always having before our eyes our community as members of the same body. I'll skip to Tocqueville and take us right to Norman Mailer. <laughs> the task is to divorce oneself from society, to exist without roots, to set out on that uncharted journey into the rebellious imperatives of self. The decision is to encourage the psychopath in oneself. That was the on the road. That was Kerouac and Corso and Ginsburg and Bill Burroughs and all the literary mishpocha. And that was the psychedelic. Psychedelics showed us the oneness in all things but it also freed us from vertical patriarchal structures, and that left us free to think and feel and intuit for ourselves. But what we had residual, it turned out, was a lot of karma because of our entrapment in our individuality. And it blossomed and blossomed and blossomed and blossomed until the me generation of the 80s, in which business and government and schools all condone out and out greed and self-interest. That's like an extreme of the imbalance of the game, where it gets that far over. Where salaries of executives are obscene, are obscene. That's how out of balance it is, that in the presence of hunger and starvation, there are salaries left. 
I mean, I try out different ways to play in the, in the universe. I listen to hear what my dharma is. And one of the things that I'm working with is the world, the world of the business community, because business is such a powerful social institution in the world today. Why should I run away from it just because I feel business people are all kind of trapped? That's my stuff to work with. I'm busy seeing business people instead of us. So I, I'm on the board of an organization called the Social Venture Network, which is fascinating. It's a group of people who come together out of business, people like Ben and Jerry, people like Anita Roddick, people like Levi Strauss, people on and on and on, Calvert Fund, all the different people come together to see if they can figure out how to be socially, whether social responsible business is an oxymoron. And basically, it probably still is, because the profit motive uber alles, still, still. We are marketing. America is marketing to the world the roots of such deep suffering in its zeal to spread the wonders of its technology. And I see these people just like I see people in government and I see people at the UN and I see people st struggling with the same issues. How do you deal with encrusted myths and conceptual models that the mind of the culture keeps reinforcing? How do you bring in a breath of spirit? And all I can say to all these people is work on yourself. You've got to be the instrument. It spreads heart to heart to heart to heart. It's catchy. But you've got to have the illness first. You've got to be free of the crucifixion in order to ascend. And that doesn't mean denying the crucifixion. It means embracing the crucifixion into yourself. If somebody says to me, are you happy? I would say yes. Somebody says to me, are you sad? I would say yes. Somebody would say, are you hopeful? Yeah. Is it hopeless? Yeah. What you and I are required to do is find the equanimity within ourself that is independent of the outcome of the game. As the Gita says, be not attached to the fruits of the actions. It gives two injunctions. It says, don't be identified with being the actor and don't be attached to the fruits of the action. And you say, if, if I'm not identified with being the actor and I'm not attached to the fruits, why would I do it? So don't. <laughs> then what happens? Well, that person hurts and I really want to help more well, than go ahead. Oh. You and I, I mean, we are so afraid of our lack of compassion that we kind of feel we have to get behind ourselves and push to be good. We bought Freud's model of the id like it was uh, tofu. You know? But it's only talking about a relative reality. It's talking about one reality. Don't get sucked in by any definition, any paradigm, any model. It's, it's much too constricting. So in the 60s, we got so into individualism and we pushed the edge and, and the systems started to fear chaos and anarchy. 
and there was a pushing back and there was the fundamentalist movement and the conservative movement and you saw that another revolutionary round was about to happen and in the midst of it you were listening to hear is there an evolutionary process going on within a revolutionary process because we were all going from the swing of the 60s and the possible to the cynicism of the post-Watergate, post-Vietnam period. couple with a baby enters a house. They yell, Mom, Dad, we're home. The older mother and father come out of a back room, all smiles, embrace the couple, and hold the child. The, the, the woman, the older woman, says to the child, Oh, you've grown so much. And they all go into the kitchen to eat. How does that make you feel? Makes you feel... Wow, a coming together. Let me just point out that I got that from an article in the newspaper because the couple with the baby was a rental couple that charged $1,100 for three hours. The money was paid for by a computer engineer in Japan who lived 10 minutes from his parents but didn't have time to visit them. So he hired this couple, and this is a going business in Japan where you hire people to visit other people. And after the three hours, the couple with the baby left, promising to come back again, no doubt. And when interviewed, the older man said, I hope later we can live with our children. But asked whether they were going to do vacations or what, they said, no, we'd rather spend our money on having the surrogate family come back. I mean, I just love the fun of, of the fact that things have changed. I got one more change thing that's too, too good not to waste, to, to waste, not to waste on you, what to waste on me. You've all seen this, I'm sure, the teacher's list of the biggest school problems. In 1940, it was talking out of turn, chewing gum, making noise, running in the halls, getting out of turn in line. This is the world I grew up in. <laughs> Wearing improper clothing, not putting trash in the wastebasket. And I could have had playing with yourself. <laughs> in 1990, interviews of the same school, the leading problems are drug and alcohol abuse, pregnancy, rape, robbery, assault, and suicide. That's who we are. Here we are. Here we are at home. We're all here. How freaked do you get? And how much do you think you can return it to where it was before the airplane, before the information age, before the computer, before the blah, 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 before television? Television. Do you know that a child from five to eight 75%, 75% of children between five and eight watch television, and the average 
for a child over a year is that they see 20,000 commercials. And most of them don't discriminate between a commercial and another, and a reality. I, when I gave this lecture last week, I gave a lecture about Brave New World. And in Brave New World, which all this published in 1931, he describes how women um, give their ovaries to the state. They get six months' salary for doing this. And then the ovaries go into the hatchery, where they are kept through chemicals alive and producing at a very fast rate. And then they take the, um, they fertilize the egg in the chest tube, and then they start growing this being, and they use various kinds of oxygen and shock controls to the fetus to bring about certain changes to make the society work. And then when the child is born, the child goes through years of hypnopedia. That means every night in sleep, they hear thousands of times, I'm so happy. I'm so happy. I'm so happy. And thousands of other times, they hear, I hate old things. I hate old things. I hate old things. Well, they hear, I love to buy things. They hear, more stitches, less riches. Never put off till tomorrow the fun you can have today. When the individual feels the community reels, everyone belongs to everyone else. I hate solitude. Imagine being conditioned with all those. Now, what that book did for me was it made me look at my society and see how I had been conditioned. And I saw how far, how brilliant was all this prediction of 1931. That as we sit 31% of our spare time in front of a television set and get programmed to a certain set of values and attitudes. And the only way to deal with that is to bring into consciousness just how that process is happening in order to free you from it. The art form of the whole dance is to be born into separateness, to grow and learn in your separateness because you have to be lost for it to work. You've got to get caught in it. And then at some point to awaken. In Aldous's island, he had an initiation rite which used the moksha medicine and uh, various trials. We don't have rituals of transformation. We don't have rituals that bring people. The bar mitzvah wasn't that for me doesn't bring me back into the blend of the two planes of consciousness, the formless and the form. At some point, we awaken to the fact that we aren't who we thought we were. As Buddha said it in his term about anatta, there is no self. There are just sets of phenomena happening. Don't take yourself so seriously. 
Don't take who you think you are and how you think it should come out and what you think is bad and what you think is good. Have all those opinions, but don't have them. Third Chinese Patriot says, the way is not difficult for those who have no opinions. Try having that for one minute, just one minute. I don't think I should. <laughs> Can you have no opinions and still have opinions? Can you live outside of time and still dance within time? Can you be free of the fear of annihilation and still be an instrument for the healing of the world? Will you become a better one if you are not doing it out of fear, but doing it out of celebratory joy and love? Everything that you absorb this weekend, and I absorb, it's what we become. We become each other. We become the, the drum and the flute and the, we become all of it. We become it. And then it's not what you collect. It's not these notes, obviously. Obviously. What you really are ready to hear, you are. And what you are will affect everything you do. See, and it's scary for you to say, well, what should I do? Because we'll hear a lot of what we should do. And my answer would be, it doesn't matter. And you don't want to hear that. That's a scary place to be. The trust that if you say it doesn't matter and you're open to all possibilities, out of it will come like judo or aikido, the act coming out of the silence that will transform that will transform. You will be in the existential moment now and now and now and now. The best preparation for the two year 2000 or your own death is this moment. The best preparation in this moment is to be free of concept. Prolong not the past, invite not the future. Honor the past, honor the diversity, honor the wisdom of the past, but don't recreate it. Or maybe you will recreate it, but do it from a place not of fear and of trying to go back, but of opening and listening so you are virtual reality and you are all of it. And then out of that will come, ah. It's the transformation from doing good to being good. So I would say you and I took birth. We all got lost in the drama. The drama is really seductive. It's more seductive than as the world turns. And it's got us. And we are extricating ourselves from the molassesy-like quality of it in order to have our awareness free even while we are in form with all of our pain, fear, heart, and all of that. And then we see all that as part of the dance, as part of the play, including power. Power is like what's going on in the Monopoly game. But you and I aren't in a power struggle with each other. You here, I'm here. What do you want? What difference does it make? That's not the stuff of it. If you want to live in a conscious environment, become a conscious person is the, basically the game. If you want to live in a healing planet, become that which you would do. Not out of trying, but of opening into, of listening your way into the Tao, the way, the elders, the wisdom, 
the nachas, the whatever level you want, the Sufi joke, whatever, whatever. And for, have I got another minute or what happened? You just told me one minute? Got one she, she, I don't trust you as far as I... The exercises are to cultivate awareness that is not trapped by the identification with experiences. The exercise is, to the extent that you are dancing in form, to play the most fun game, that is, dancing with the beloved. So the earth is the beloved, your enemies are your beloved, they are all the face of the beloved. And when you really love somebody, you really, really want them to be happy. And it's not a bad gig to just hang out celebrating your beloved. The fact that you're not doing it all the time everywhere must be very hard for you. I wish you Godspeed. It's the journey I'm on. I don't know what else to do. Inform to dance with the beloved and do it all in a space of absolute empty imminence. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.